James 2, 14 through 26, Faith and Deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is George Stulak. For most of my career, I was the senior pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church here in St. Louis. And during those years and in that context, I got to know a young woman in Memorial Church named Jenny. And through her, I began to get to know a young man who was paying a lot of attention to her. His name was Eric. And later on, I had the high privilege of performing their wedding and later after that, I also had the high privilege of preaching the sermon at Eric's ordination service, service. And now Eric is your pastor and Jenny is his wife. And I want to say to you, from my years of being a pastor here in St. Louis and getting to know a lot of pastors and hearing a lot of different pastors preach, in my opinion, Eric Stiller is one of the very best preachers in the whole St. Louis area, maybe the best. Amen. Oh, good. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> Furthermore, I think he's one of the finest pastors for pastoral care of people and leading a church of any pastor in the St. Louis area. You have a treasure here in Eric and Jenny. She is a wonderful compliment to him. Great people. So I hope you will treasure them and care for them well. 
when I left Memorial Presbyterian Church three and a half, four years ago, it was not to retire from ministry, but just do another ministry instead. And what I settled on was to work with a mission agency called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Some of you are familiar with that. But if you're not, it is a mission organization that ministers to students and faculty at colleges and universities across this country and in other countries of the world as well. And when I began to work for them, they developed a job description for me that gave me a dual role. Half of my job description is to develop faculty ministry here in St. Louis. And so I do that on multiple campuses in the St. Louis area. Uh, And the other half of my job is spiritual formation ministry, which means I help the spiritual formation of the InterVarsity campus staff so that they can have a deeper ministry in the lives of the students. It is in that area especially, as I've been learning a lot in these last few years, both about faculty ministry and spiritual formation ministry, it's in that area of spiritual formation ministry and what I've been learning about it that I have some great concerns about how I hear many people understanding and responding to that passage of scripture that was just read to us today. Because for many people, I find, that passage is very confusing. And the result of that confusion is they end up ignoring the passage. The confusion is that this passage sounds like it is James disputing with the Apostle Paul, especially what he wrote in the books of Galatians and Romans, where he especially developed his, his thesis that we are saved by faith alone, not by works. And now here's James writing with a lot of emphasis on the works, on the deeds, what he calls deeds, but it's the word that Paul uses for works. So, Paul, so James seems to be disputing with Paul. That is confusing. And as a result, uh, many people read this and not being sure what to do with that dispute, simply, uh, assume, simply reach the conclusion that it had to do with some differing points of view between those two apostles back in that day, but it really doesn't have much relevance for us today. today. So they say something like, faith, deeds, What difference does it make? They're just two different ways of expressing our religion. In regard to that way of viewing this passage and responding to it, I want to tell you three things. Number one, it is historically inaccurate because James wrote this letter in the early to mid-40s A.D. That's before... Paul wrote his letters, especially Galatians and Romans. So James was not reacting to something Paul had written. Secondly, the the idea that there was a disagreement between Paul and James is false. James uh, James and Paul were writing to two different sets of people at two different times, two different contexts, for different emphases. 
But the third thing that I want to tell you is the most important one. It is this. From what I have learned about spiritual formation in these last few years, I find that what James wrote here in that passage matters greatly for our spiritual formation. It matters greatly for whether our faith is going to be joyful and life-giving or not. And therefore, it is harmful. It is to our harm to ignore this passage in James. And that's what I want to try to explain to you and show to you from the text in this sermon. So, you've been reading through the book of James in your worship services for a few weeks now, as I understand it. So I want to remind you of the very beginning of Paul's letter to, of James' letter, of James's letter, and uh, because the themes are set here. So, James 1, verse 1, the beginning, here's what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, that phrase 12 tribes was a common phrase Uh, used to refer to to Jewish people because the Jewish nation was descended from the 12 sons and grandsons of of Jacob and their descendants became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's writing to Jews who have been scattered, but not just Jews, but Jews who have become Christians. He's writing to a Christian audience, Jewish Christians. And he says to them, Twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Then James gives them this instruction. This imperative, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So to highlight the things that are there, James wrote as a servant of Jesus who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's where he starts. And we are his servants. He wrote to Christians who were scattered by persecution. And therefore, they were experiencing hardships and trials of many kinds, James says, really hard things in their lives. They had been driven away from their homes and their friends and their livelihood, and they were, life was hard for them. In the midst of that, he tells them, to persevere. He writes to them to strengthen them to persevere in godly living, godly behavior, what he calls in the letter deeds, doing godly things, to practice godliness in how they live. And he, and he, he is strengthening them to do that because of the purpose that God has in it all. It is for them to be spiritually formed into people who are mature and complete. 
So James and Paul later, in his own context, agree that God is forming us to become people who are mature and complete. James and Paul both wrote that it happens, that spiritual formation happens according to this pattern, this progression. It's this. Truth starts with truth. Our spiritual formation starts with truth. Truth then informs our faith. And the truth, the key truth, which James states at the very beginning of his letter is, Jesus is Lord, and we are his servants. Paul wrote the very same thing in his letters. I don't have time now to expound to you Paul's letters. I'll just focus on this passage, but you can look for it. James wrote the same, uh, Paul wrote the same thing. Then, second stage of spiritual formation is that faith, once, as, as truth informs our faith, Faith then produces godliness or deeds, godly behavior, as James calls it. So James emphasizes doing deeds and persevering in doing deeds. It is the practice of godly behavior. Paul, in his letters, wrote the very same thing. So it's truth. Spiritual formation begins with truth. Truth informs faith. And then our faith, when it is well informed by the truth, produces in us godliness. And then there's one more phase to this. It is that godliness, when it is genuine, acts in love. That's where God wants to form us. That's where he wants to take us. Love is the goal. We become people who love maturely and completely. Our lives become lives of love. So truth informs our faith. Faith produces godliness, and godliness always, when it's genuine godliness, it always acts in love. So the more we act in godliness, the more we're going to become loving people. Paul wrote all of those same things. And I have, during these years of learning spiritual formation ministry, I have seen it spelled out in Paul's letters and here in James as well. These elements, James and Paul both say, are necessarily connected. They're tied together inseparably because they are all part of one dynamically operating process of spiritual formation. And we, by understanding it, can participate in our own spiritual formation. So to take those same elements, but to put them in reverse order, to work backwards through the process, to hear the corollaries, it operates like this. Your love will be most pure when it is flowing most thoroughly out of genuine godliness. And your godliness will be most genuine when it is most thoroughly moved by faith, life-giving faith. And your faith will be most life-giving 
when it is most thoroughly informed by truth. And therefore, we can participate in our spiritual formation by first by studying scripture so that we are learning truth. That's one of the steps of, of participating in our spiritual formation. And secondly, we can participate in our spiritual formation by by believing the truth that we find, putting our faith in who Jesus is, who he really is. And therefore, we also then participate in our spiritual formation by obeying in deeds Christ who is Lord. And as we are most thoroughly obeying Christ, we are going to be practicing love. So that's the picture of spiritual formation. This passage that was just read focuses on that uh, dynamic unity of the whole process in one particular phase of it. It's that phase of the connectedness between faith and godly behavior, or faith and deeds. And James is asserting here that we must not separate faith from deeds. They are tied together. In James's explanation of it in this passage, he is explaining that deeds are not something we do instead of faith, but rather because of faith. And deeds are not done apart from faith, but rather they flow from faith in Christ. So, that's what he's talking about, and I'm going to now take you through, I'm going to walk you through the, the arguments that, that James presents here, step by step, so that we see how it is he makes his case for that thesis. James' explanation proceeds in four stages here in this passage to assert the necessary union between faith and deeds. In other words, the union between what we believe and how we act. The first phase of his argument is that he poses two rhetorical questions. That means two questions that have an obvious answer. The two questions are first, if you have faith without deeds, what good is it? And the answer is none. No good at all. And the second rhetorical question is, can faith without works save you? And the answer is no, not at all. So faith, he argues, faith that is not carried out in your deeds, in your behavior, in how you act, is useless in general, and it is useless in the specific matter of salvation. And salvation is the primary reason to believe, to have faith. That's the point of having faith. It's salvation. All right. So faith that is not carried out in deeds is futile and useless. Second stage of his argument here is that he gives an example. Suppose, he says, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So, if your fellow believer, that's what he means by a brother or sister, a fellow believer in Christ, is in such need as this, and if you just say, keep warm, 
and well fed, but you do nothing to feed them or clothe them, what good is it? James asks. It's of no good. Do you know that Christianity has been called the most materialistic religion of all? Not in the sense that Christianity encourages us to be greedy after material wealth, it doesn't, but in this sense, that Christianity of all religions takes seriously the value of material things. And the value is that God created the material world. Other religions, there are other religions in the world that, that, uh, pre- that teach a dichotomy between the spiritual realm and the material realm, saying that the material realm is, is inferior and evil, whereas the spiritual realm is superior and good. Christianity does not posit that kind of dichotomy, but rather sees the material world and the spiritual realm as good because the same God created both and he created them good. And that's why we as Christians, recognizing that we care for the material world, we care for God's creation, we care for the environment, and we have compelling reason to do it. God made it. And God made it good. So we take care of it. We also take care of bodily needs. We see somebody in need for material help of clothing or food, and we provide that. That's the second stage of James' argument in the first half of this passage. The third is that James then draws a conclusion. It is this. Faith by itself, not carried out in actions, is dead. It's a strong word there, a strong conclusion. It is dead. Faith that's not carried out in actions is dead. But actually, in the Greek, as James wrote this, the word order is different. He puts the phrase by itself at the very end of the sentence. So the sentence actually reads in order, In the same way, faith, if it has not deeds, is dead by itself. It's important because it makes the, it puts the emphasis on those last words by taking them out of the order that seems natural in English. It puts it at the end of the sentence to emphasize this, to make it emphatic, that faith, if it's not carried out in deeds, is dead by itself. Faith is dead by itself. If faith, if it is real, genuine, saving faith, is carried out in godly behavior, it will produce life in actions. And then there's the fourth stage of this first half, verses 14 through 18. The fourth stage is that James anticipates how someone might reply to this. James says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James is there anticipating the very response to this passage that I said at the start. 
this sermon that I've noticed and that concerns me greatly. It is when people read it and are confused by it and choose to ignore it, to dismiss it as an ancient dispute between two apostles that don't affect, that does not affect our faith today. And so they say, faith, deeds, what difference does it make? They're just two different ways of expressing our religion. James, to that, says, no, do not separate your faith from your deeds. They are one reality in God's work of spiritual formation in us. Faith without deeds is dead. James says you cannot show genuine faith without deeds, but I will show you the reality of my faith by my deeds. That's the first half of the passage in those four phases of his argument. So he is asserting a union, a necessary union between your faith and your deeds. Now we're going to move to the second half of the passage in which James gives three examples by which he confirms that thesis that there is a necessary union between our faith and our deeds. Three examples, and each of these examples, though they're all making that point in general, there are three examples that come at that point from different angles, and so it's worth taking time to see what all three of them are saying. The first example is demons. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that. This first example shows a devastating irony. If even demons believe that truth, that there is one God, one real God, then believing that truth cannot save you. The demons certainly are not saved by it because though they know that truth, that there's one real God, they hate that God. They do not obey that God. They hate that God. None of us here, no Christian, wants to be like a demon. That's why this is such a devastating irony. If we are thinking we can be saved by what we believe that's not carried out in our lives. None of us wants to be like a demon. Second example is Abraham. This shows us a, 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 an, an indisputable authority because Abraham is the recognized patriarch both in the Jewish faith and in the Christian faith. Abraham is our patriarch. We hold him in high respect. James says, Abraham's act of obeying God to take his son up the mountain to be sacrificed and being about to slay his own son as a sacrifice to God, that act of obedience 
shows the union between faith and deeds. Abraham's faith in God and his deed of obeying God's command were, James says, working together as one reality. James even describes that working together with a wordplay that you can see in Greek that doesn't come through in the English translation as well. But James, what James actually says literally is that Abraham's faith was working by works. Working by works. The verb and the noun have the same root to them. In other words, he's describing a synergy here between faith and deeds. They're working together. But there's another dynamic to this, not just the synergy, but also James describes a, a, uh, a completion about this union between the faith and the deeds in Abraham's life. Abraham's faith, he says, was made complete by what he did. So the faith was incomplete until it was carried out in deeds. And the verb made complete is the same root for the adjective that James used back in chapter 1, verse 4, when he said the goal is to be mature. That's where God is taking us. And faith is incomplete toward that end until it is carried out in deeds. And there's a third aspect to this dynamic in Abraham's example. It is fulfillment. He says, the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the scripture was fulfilled by carrying out the faith with deeds. So there are three dynamics to this example of Abraham. There's the synergy, there's the completion, and there's the fulfillment. In all three of those ways, Abraham is an example of indisputable authority that there is an, an, a, a necessary union between the faith and the deeds. So there's a union between what we believe and how we behave. And then there's one more example. The third example is Rahab. First example was a devastating irony. The second example is an indisputable authority. The third example shows us a universal application of this principle that faith and deeds are united as one. Abraham was the respected patriarch with impeccable credentials. Rahab was the extreme opposite of Abraham because Rahab was a prostitute. She was morally unfit. Furthermore, she was not a, a Hebrew. She was part of another ethnic group, not part of the covenant people of God, so she was ethnically an outsider. And yet, in this respect, James says, Abraham and Rahab were no different from each other because she, too, had to act on her faith by obeying her Lord. She too had, had to have her faith, she had to carry out her faith by obedient actions. Do you remember the story of Rahab, how she did that? Rahab was a woman who lived in the city of Jericho, and Joshua, leading the people of Israel after the death of Moses, came into the promised land, and there was Jericho, and, and Joshua uh, sent spies into Jericho 
So it was a very dangerous mission. If they were discovered and caught, they would be executed. They went to Rahab's house in their spying out the city. And Rahab believed in their God. She believed from the things she had heard about what God had done in them, she believed that must be the true God. And because she believed in their God, the Hebrew God, she acted to help them in their need. If she had said to those spies, go on your way in peace, don't get caught, it would have been the equivalent of saying to your brother or sister who is without food and without, without clothes and without daily food, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed. She acted on her faith in obedience and helped them in their need. And for this, James says, she was considered righteous. It's the same Greek verb that James used to describe Abraham. So the same spiritual formation is happening in Abraham the patriarch and in Rahab the prostitute. Same spiritual formation. So that by that, James is showing the necessary union between faith and deeds. So finally, then, at the la in the last verse of the passage, James summarizes what these examples show. It is this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without the authenticating deeds is no genuine saving, life-giving faith at all. Instead, it is a meaningless, useless, powerless, lifeless imposter. There, I've walked you through the passage, what James says. Now to close, I, I, I want to point us to, a, to two areas of application of all this. And the first one is this. Receive the gospel here. You remember the word gospel means good news. Receive the good news in this. Receive the gospel according to James. And it is this. Jesus is Savior and Lord. This is the gospel according to James. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Jesus came and died for you. He came and died for you to, to deliver you from your sin and from death, to give you life. Therefore, trust him for this. Trust him for this because he's the one who did that for you. Moses didn't do that for you. Muhammad didn't do it for you. Buddha didn't do it for you. Nobody else did it for you but Jesus. Trust him for it. Furthermore, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to be with the Father where he rules, and he rules for your good. Believe that about him, and therefore follow him as your Lord. Obey him as your Lord. Put your 
faith together with your deeds then. Because now you may live in this salvation. Our faith is to be lived. So now we realize that faith is belief toward Jesus by which we do all the things James has been writing about that you've been reading about for a few weeks now through this letter. I'll, I'll, I'll put those together here. Here's, here's what it means. Faith is belief toward Jesus by which you endure trials, seek wisdom, resist temptation, control your tongue, look after orphans and widows in their distress, Keep yourself unpolluted by the world. Avoid favoritism. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give material aid to the poor. And in short, live as a doer of God's word. That's what faith is. Because that's a pretty impressive list, maybe a daunting list, I want to emphasize, you will not do it perfectly. And James knows that when he wrote it. You will not do it perfectly, but... By the grace of God that flows to you in Christ who is your Lord and Savior, you are completely forgiven. You are completely accepted. You are completely welcomed. You are completely loved by God just as you are. That is good news and that's the gospel. Now, therefore, pursue life because you are completely forgiven, completely welcomed, completely accepted, and completely loved by God just as you are. So the second area of application is participate joyfully in God's work of spiritual formation that he is pursuing in you to make you into whole people. Let the truth that Jesus is Lord inform your faith. And then let your faith be life-giving by leading you into godly living, deeds of obedience to him as Lord. And then let your godliness, you carry out in obedience, take you into a life of love because genuine godliness always acts in love. In this formation this spiritual formation process, it is God's purpose to give us life to the fullest, a whole life, life to the fullest beyond anything that we imagine yet, beyond anything that we experience yet in the ordinary lives for which we commonly settle. God is taking us to the life to the fullest, Go there, believe it, and go there. But if you want to go there, understand it is destructive of that goal in God, for, that God has for your life. It is destructive of that goal if you separate your faith from, you de from your deeds. If you separate what you believe from how you act, it will be destructive of that work of spiritual formation and the goal. God's work in us is growing us into a faith and a life that is so full, so compelling, so, so 
desirable, so joyful, so full, that, that our inward faith and our outward behavior will become one. See, it's important. <laughs> With a thud. It is God's goal to have us thoroughly shaped by the truth that Jesus is your Lord. And so, uh, I want to um, take you back to a quote of C.S. Lewis that is written in your bulletin. I asked Eric to put it in the bulletin this week so that I could close with this. The C.S. Lewis quote, if you can find that, it is this. Lewis wrote, God claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That's how Lewis wraps up what this sermon is about. So I'm going to lead us in prayer now, and I'm going to start with a minute of silent prayer because I invite you first to pray your own response to this word of God in James. James.